Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the third Aliyah of Parshat, or Sidrat, Noach. The third Aliyah of uh, the Parshat of Noach covers the actual flood, the taking away of the ship and the coming down of the waters. Um, and since the Torah is concerned or centered on religious and human history, as opposed to just natural history. It begins in chapter 7, verse 17, with the lifting off of the ark, how that affects humankind, and ends in chapter 8, verse 14, with essentially the ark coming to rest and the land being um, ready for Noah to leave the ark, even though he won't leave until the beginning of the next Aliyah. The timeline, the sequence of events uh, of this flood, are challenging. So I'll state the issues up front and then refer to them when we get to the applicable verses and point out why there are some, or really so many difficulties. So let's start. First, we have the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, beginning with the 17th day of the second month of the year. Either that's Mar Cheshvan, if you start with Tishrei, according to Rabbi Eliezer, or that is Ers, according to Rabbi Yoshua, which is an argument of these two rabbis in the Talmud. Next, the Torah describes a period of 150 days that is seemingly following the, and, uh, the, the 40 days of rain. There is 150 days where the water is either increasing or powerful over the land. Rashi says that the 150 days begin after the rain stops, which means they follow the 40 days. And Ramban says that the 150 days include the 40 days and 40 nights. Next, a wind comes that reduces the water to the point where the ark comes to a rest on the uh, mountain, uh, on the mountain range, I should say. Either immediately, uh, this happens either um, at, at the seventh month of the year, according to Rambam, and therefore, according to the Ramban, and therefore it's sort of an immediate regression of the waters which allows the ark to come to a rest. Or according to Rashi, it happens 60 days after the 150 day period, uh, which is not the seventh month of the year, but the seventh month from the beginning of the flood. That's Rashi's opinion. The next thing that happens, the fourth thing that happens, is in the tenth month, again, according to Ramban, it is the tenth absolute month of the year, and according to Rashi, it is the tenth month from the start of the flood. Uh, the tops of the mountains are revealed. Forty days after that, Noah opens up the window and sends out the raven. Seven days later, Noah sends out a dove who returns with nothing. Seven days after that, Noah sends out the dove again who returns with an olive branch. Seven days later, Noah sends out a dove a third time and the dove does not return, meaning the land is viable, at least for doves. Uh, this is the first day of the first month of the year, which is, again, either Tishrei, uh, which most medieval Bible commentators prefer, and our Rosh Hashanah liturgy actually prefers it since there's references to that event of the dove, or uh, it is the first day of Nisan, which is preferred by uh, the literature of many groups during the Second Temple, and which I prefer as well. On the 27th day of the second absolute month, or some, let's see, 30 plus 27, 57 days later, either Mar Cheshvan or, or Er, after 365 full days, or one solar year after the rains began, Noah can is now ready to leave the ark. Or the land, I should say, is now ready for Noah to leave the ark and restart civilization. With all of these events, it is important to note that the third Aliyah does not structure itself along these chronological events, 
but rather it is structured on two religious events, the first being the destruction of the world by God, and the second, beginning with chapter 8, verse 1, is the salvation of the world, or the recreation of the world by God. And the cataclysm was 40 days on the earth, and the waters grew, and they carried off the ark, which rose up above the earth. According to Ebenezer, it took 40 days for the water level to grow deep enough to carry off the boat. This opinion, which I kind of like, it fits into the the at least the, uh, the the grammar of the verse, this opinion raises interesting practical and religious questions about what everybody was doing for the first 39 days when it was raining, but the uh, but the, the ark was still anchored down. Was God giving humanity one last chance even after the rain was already upon them to uh, and they could do tshuva? Uh, did Noah delay closing up the ship until he could delay no more? There are various uh, midrashim and commentaries regarding these issues. Other commentators, however, say that the ship was lifted up right away. So, therefore, the grammar, we would have to read the verse as follows. When it says, Vayisu et teva, that after 40 days, instead of it says, after 40 days, and then it carried away the teva, we'd have to read it as a past perfect verb, meaning, and the waters had already lifted up the ark. And this approach fits, I think, with the description of the waters coming not only from above, but also from below. That is, the problem wasn't only rain, it was these uh, essentially underground water systems, the abyss, which was cracked open, and the groundswell started from below as well. Anyway, starting from this verse, the Torah uses a very careful language to convey three stages of ever-increasing water levels. In this verse, we read, Vayirbu hamayim, and the waters grew, or they grew great. Next, we have stage two, Vayigbaru hamayim, Vayirbu ma'ot, al ha'aretz, and the waters grew and became exceedingly great over the earth, and the ark traveled over the face of the water. I would say it would sail, but it wasn't a sailboat. I would say it steamed ahead, but it wasn't a steamboat. It essentially carried it wherever God wanted to carry it, which is one of the moral messages of, uh, the religious messages of this section. The verb vayig beru does not only, carries with it not only a quantitative sense that the waters grew great, but there's a qualitative sense. The word gibor, vayig beru, means it was strong. That is, the waters are, were wild and massive and destructive and a living entity. There's a personification of the waters as this, as this powerful living entity that managed to overwhelm and inundate the earth. And now we have stage three where we are introduced to a superlative. Vahamayim gavru me'od me'od al ha'aretz vayichusu kol ha'harim and the waters grew greater and greater over the earth, which I think really is a superlative, meaning it grew to their greatest level of depth and of their destructive power until all the tall mountains that were under the skies were covered. The waters increased to 15, 15 amot, say about 22 feet, uh, or 30 feet or so over the top, the mountains were covered. Again, we've seen that the flood narrative has a lot of repetition. Here again, we have the repetition that the mountains are being covered. And perhaps w- the reason why the Torah uses all this repeti- repetition is because it's trying to express the cataclysmic nature of this event, the power of this event. And in biblical Hebrew, there is this 
a method of communicating called uh, biblical poetry, which is identifiable through its repetitions, and it, it, it creates a certain sense of power, it creates a, a, a dramatic sense, and I think this the fact that we're really using poetic language in a sense, that it's not just a narrative, but there's poetry here, that fits into this very carefully staged, uh, you know, three steps of increasing of the waters, which conveys, I think, to the listener and to the viewer, if you can picture it in your mind, a, a, a certain inevitability of the flood's rising waters. And now the main point of this section is upon us. And as I said, this is not a natural history book, but a religious history book, a history of how God acts how he creates, and unfortunately here, how he destroys. And all flesh that trod over the earth perished. This is a general statement which is now detailed. Perished are the birds and the, domestic, the domesticated animals and the wild animals and all the teeming things, the, the creepy crawlies that teem over the land and all human beings, all of humanity. Sometimes, as we've seen and as we'll see again, the list of affected life, the list of life which is on the ark, or the list of life that was not on the ark, is shortened and given in shorthand. Not always every piece is mentioned, but not in this verse. When the Torah is discussing the end of all life, it goes through everything in details. And then it continues on to say, Perished are, Kol asher nishmat ruach chayim biapav, all that have the life force of breath in their noses, all those that are on dry land die. This, interestingly enough, seems to be that the Torah is excluding explicitly the fish and other sea creatures that don't breathe air straight from the atmosphere. So perhaps it just wanted to tell us that they survived. There is a midrash about the waters becoming so hot, so Ramban says, if the fish survive, how come they didn't die also in the boiling waters? Uh, he comes up with a solution, but that's midrashic, and I'll just stay close to the text. Based on the text, it seems that the fish had no problem with the flood whatsoever. And he, that is God, of course, wiped out all the yakum, meaning all existing things on the face of the earth, from man to animals to invertebrates to birds of the sky, they were all wiped off of the earth. And only Noah and those with him in the ark survived. Again, notice the duplication, the poetic duplication. And he wiped out an active verb with God as the subject of the sentence, which is at the beginning of the verse, and then a repetition. And they were all wiped out with a passive verb, and the subject being the uh, creatures and the animals, the yakum that was destroyed at the end of the verse, a very dramatic and poetic a sandwich of, well, destruction. Vayigburu hamayim ala aretz chamishimu ma'yom, and the water increased, or as I prefer to translate the word vayigburu, it grew strong, or was strong over the earth for a hundred, for 150 days. So either the water is increasing and increasing for a full 150 days, either fed by the rain for 40 days, and then by the wellsprings of the abyss, uh, the water coming up from below for the remainder of the 110 days, or it means that after 40 days, the world was completely inundated, inundated and overcome by water until things began to turn around. I'll explain why this difference between understanding the word Vayikburu is important shortly. And now we begin chapter 8, and we begin the second phase of uh, this Aliyah. And if you'll notice, the chaptering system is not always so accurate. 
Um, but the Aliyah system that we're using really does capture the the structure of of um, of the Noah narrative because it combines both the destructive phase as well as the salvation phase in one piece. So you're not sort of left hanging and thinking that they're separate. They're not. It's like two sides of the coin. And in fact, many of the verbs from section one are reversed for section two. The waters open up. The waters are closed. The mountains are covered. The mountains are revealed. And that's a very important idea, which you lose when you break up the uh, the Parsha into chapters, uh, rather than breaking up into Aliyot, which is how we're doing it here for the OU project. Anyway, we now move on to the salvation phase. Salvation is introduced using the same word, Vayizkar, when God remembers, the same verb is used uh, when God remembers Abraham and saved his adopted son Lot from the cataclysm of the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea Basin, when he overturned that area in fire and brimstone. The same word, Vayizkar, is also used when God remembers Israel and Egypt and saves them from their slavery and and inevitable annihilation. Obviously, the word Vaiskor doesn't simply mean to remember in the sense that God forgot anything. It simply means that he keeps his promise even when things look from our perspective completely lost. Vaiskor Elohim et Noach ve'ekol ha'chaya ve'ekol ha'behima asher ito ba'teva v'ya'aver Elohim ruach al ha'aretz v'yashoku ha'mayim. And God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domesticated animals that were with him in the ark. And God brought a wind over the earth and the water quieted down. This is a reversal of Vayigberu Hamayim, which personified the waters as powerful and destructive. Here the verb Vayashoku from the word Shachach, like Hamat HaMelech Shachacha, the anger of the king became lessened or made at ease. So we maintain the personifications of the waters, and here the waters are quieting down and becoming at ease. Rabban feels that, that this wind, this wind that God brings over the earth, clears a huge amount of water on in a single day. Essentially, on day number 150, going to 151, there is this massive wind which blows away a huge amount of water or returns the water to the uh, the ground where it belongs. The reason why he feels this way is because in two verses, the Torah will say that the waters become less by the end of the 150 days, and the ark comes, according to the way the Ramban understand things, the ark comes to an immediate rest. Therefore, you really need to clear a whole lot of water in order for the ark to come to a rest at the very end of the 150 days. Rashi feels that the waters subsided more gradually. I'll return to this issue in two verses, and I'll offer a third alternative, which is close to the Ramban, but not exactly. Vayisakheru mayinot tehom va'arubot ha'shamayim vayikalei ha'geshem min ha'shamayim. And the wellsprings of the abyss closed. The word vayisakheru uh, is opposite of the word vayiftechu or vayivkeu. So you can think of it, if you want to replace the chafra gimel, you would get vayisagheru from the word loose gore to close. But it, that's probably not it. It's probably just a synonym, which means a very similar thing, that, that the mayinot, the wellsprings, all closed up. Uh, as did the Arubot in the sky, and the water was locked up in the skies. As I said in the previous Aliyah, Arubot has been translated as windows, storerooms, and uh, some like the word floodgates, but it's all the same, it all points to the same imagery, that the water was increasing and increasing in the heavens until it burst through the dams in the sky that were holding it back, and now those dams are being closed up. And uh, oh, those floodgates, uh, perhaps. Well, floodgates is a very good term. And now we get the seemingly repetitive verse regarding the aforementioned 150 days, 
which is at the center of a lot of confusion regarding the sequence of events and how long all these events took place. And the waters drew continuously back from the earth and the waters lessened by the end of the 150 days. Now Rashi says that this means the waters began to recede at after at the end, or, or really after the completion of the 150 days, since it said three verses ago that during the entire 150 days, meaning the waters increased. Therefore, Rashi must say that, therefore, Rashi says that the decreasing process starts only after the 150 days are over, and therefore he has to um, sort of understand the next verse in a very special way. The very next verse refers to the ark coming to rest on top of the mountain in the seventh month meaning, and what Rashi says is it doesn't mean the seventh month of the year, but it means counting from the beginning of the flood seven months, which therefore buys Rashi an extra month or even two months the way he lays it out for the water levels to decrease. Let's try the verse Rashi's way. And the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month. So let's do the math. Since the ark took off on the 17th day of the second month of the year, that is the absolute second month of the year, and the waters increased for 150 days, according to Rashi, if we divide 150 days into 30 days per month, that's five months. That would take us from the 17th, 17th day of the second month to the 17th day of the seventh month, which is what we have here. Now, whether that's Nisan or whether it's Cheshvan, it, it doesn't matter what the seventh month is for this particular math. But what it means is that immediately after the 150 days, i.e. the day after the 150 days, the ship landed in the Ararat mountain range. Now, since the water was 15 amot over the top of the mountains... That would require, in order for the boat to come to rest in the mountains, that would require an instantaneous decrease of the water level. I'm not going to go into the issue now of how much of the boat was immersed underwater. Remember, the boat was 30 amorai, but the assumption, one way or the other, according to Rashi and Ramban, is that there must be a decrease in the water in order for something new to happen and for the boat to come to a rest. Now, Rashi doesn't like the idea that there's this instantaneous decrease. So, based on rabbinic literature, he says that this verse happened 60 days after the 150-day period, which means when the verse says in the seventh, in the, on the 17th day of the seventh month, he means the seventh month after the beginning of the flood. That buys you essentially 60 full days. Therefore, the number seven in this verse, according to Rashi, is an ordinal number, not a cardinal number. It doesn't mean month number seven. It means count seven months later from the start of the story, from the start of the narrative. The Ramban, for a number of reasons, does not like Rashi's approach. Foremost among them is that it's not fair to play it this way. It's clear that in the beginning of the story, the months were number, the, the number of the months were cardinal. That is, month number two meant month number two in the year. And they'll wind up being cardinal again. So it's not fair to flip it around in the middle of a narrative from month number X to an X number of months and then to flip back again. So what the Ramban says is that this is month number seven of the year which leaves you only one day to get rid of 22 feet of water, which he does uh, in ways that, you know, I'll, if you're interested, look at the Ramban, and he'll show you how he vanishes 22 feet of water in essentially one day. Personally, 
I think that the Ramban is right that it, it is the month number seven of the year, but I don't think we need to di- make that much water disappear in, in one day. Remember, the Torah repeats the idea of 150 days. First in the destruction section, that started in chapter 7, saying, Vayigberu Hamayim, and now in the salvation section, where we have the opposite verb, Vayachseru Hamayim. From the perspective of the destructive phase, that is when the destructive phase mentioned 150 days, the water is all-powerful. So therefore, I think Vayigberu doesn't mean it increased and increased and increased, but that is qualitatively it was powerful and um, and invincible and strong. Why? Because as long as the tops of the mountains are inaccessible to humanity, as long as the ark is still buffeting around and sailing around, uh, and unable to land, so long as salvation was out of reach for the small amount of humans left and for the animals left on the ship, then regardless of whether the water level is rising a little bit or falling a little bit, the earth is It's overcome by the power of the flood. Once the water goes down enough or becomes less powerful, perhaps less swirly and less waves, and, and the ship is able to take hold on the mountain, then salvation becomes. Which means the actual decrease of the water may have happened before the 150 days. But for the perspective of destruction, it doesn't make a difference. The water still is on top of everything, and therefore there's no salvation. But from the perspective of salvation, which is the section we're in now... Um, we're focusing not on the fact that the water was was super powerful during that 150 days, but that at some point during the 150 days, the destruction started to decrease and the salvation started to rise. And therefore, I think we could say, just like Ramban, that the seventh month is the seventh month. How do you get rid of, rid of 22 feet of water in one day? You didn't. Probably even a month before the 150 days, maybe starting from the 40th day, or maybe starting from 115 days, or maybe even starting from 140 days, the water started to reduce. Um, and from our salvation perspective, that was enough to talk about the fact that the waters were coming down. Um, a word, all right, so that's essentially the math. And that's how I think everything works out. Um, a word on the Ararat mountain range, which is located in the Lake Van region of southeastern uh, Turkey, which is directly north of Mesopotamia, which is probably where the boats uh, uh, sailed from. It's the cradle of civilization. Um, and it's probably, no doubt, where uh, where the home of our Noah was. So about the Ararat mountain range, I remember seeing a movie when I was a kid about searching for the ark on Mount Ararat. And I'd just like to point out that the Torah does not say that it came down on Mount Ararat. It said it, it, said it came down on the Mount Ararat range. And therefore, it seems unwise to start look, looking for any specific mountain when there are I don't know how many of them, dozens, hundreds of mountains in that range. Unfortunately, even though the ark has come to a rest, the land, the practical land, is still not usable for humanity, and therefore humanity is still stuck in its ship. So the next phase begins. And the... Water continued to decrease until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Note again the poetic repetition here, the 10th of the month, and then repeating the 10th of the month. But more importantly, note the repetition or the recalling of the creation process. On day number three of the creation of the world, all the way back in chapter one, the water separated and the dry land was seen. Vatera'eh, 
Hayabasha. Here we have the same verb, niru, and it's even in the passive form, niru rashei haharim. And it was after 40 days, and Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, which Rashi said the window is the Tzohar, which means he really prefers the idea that the Tzohar was a window and not some kind of phosphorescent stone. But in fact, it may have been another window that we were not told about in the original blueprints from chapter 6. Um, anyway, getting to the getting a little bit back to the math, if the 10th month, uh, from the previous verse, which you mentioned the previous verse, is in, is the month of the year, and I think it is, like Ramban, I think it is, and if the month number one begins with Nisan, which I think it does, then this is the tenth day of Adar, forty days after the ark came to rest on the first day of the tenth month, which was Shabbat. So right now we are in the tenth day, uh, 40 days later, we are in the uh, 10th day of the 11th month. Vayishlach et ha'orev vayetzei atzov ha'shov ha'divoshon ha'mayim me'ala aretz. And he let loose the raven. And why it says the raven and the dove, as opposed to a raven and a dove, there's probably a lot of, there's a lot of midrashic material, but we could just say the one that he chose. And it, the raven, continued to go back and forth until the water dried up on the land. Now that won't be for another two months, so the raven will just fly around and around and around. Um, we'll see the water doesn't completely dry up until the 27th day of ER. So essentially the mission of the raven fails. Rashi says, in fact, that the bird just circles the ark and doesn't, doesn't refuses to go anywhere. There's a lot of midrashic material on this, and there may be some very important symbolism of the raven versus the dove. Um, maybe practically the raven didn't want to leave its mate because there were only two of them, if you remember. It was not a tahor, a pure animal, as opposed to the dove, which was in seven pairs. I'm not sure. Ultimately, the Torah does not tell us why the raven mission does not work out for Noah. But no worries, Noah has another trick up his sleeve. Literally, he has a bird up his sleeve. Vayishalach et hayona meito lirot hakalu hamayim me'al and he sent out the dove to determine if the water had lessened from the face of the land. This clearly means he's looking for arable, livable lands, just rather than just a few pieces of rock on top of the mountains, which are already visible. Uh, it doesn't say how long he waited between the raven mission and the dove mission, but we'll see from the next verse that it's exactly seven days. So the dove goes out on the 17th day of Adar. Velo hayona manoach lekaf but the dove did not find a resting place for her feet or her talons. Um, and it, the dove, returned to him, to the ark, because water still covered the whole land. Uh, again, that means the arable, usable land. The, and Noah extended his arm and caught her and brought her or grabbed her and brought her to him into the ark. Note the play on Noah's name and what the the fact that the dove did not find Manoach uh, uh, to put down his feet or his talons. This play on Noah's name, Noach, uh, which means rest, comfort, or respite, is found often in the flood narrative, and I'll point it out a few more times as it comes up. Vayachel od shivat yamim 
Achirim. Vayosef shalach et hayona min And he waited another seven days. That's how we know the first waiting period was seven days, because this says another seven days. So now we know this mission begins on the 23rd of Adar. And he again released the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him by evening time, and behold, it had a torn fig leaf in its mouth or beak. And Noah understood that the waters had lessened from the face of the earth. There are other translations for the word taraf, uh, taraf, but I'll stick to the fact that it was torn off in its mouth. And he waited another seven days and he released the dove and it did not return to him anymore. The verb for Noah's waiting changes from Vayachel to the more passive Vayachel, but I'm hesitant to offer any change uh, to the practical translation. Anyway, this third mission takes place, of course, on the first day of the first month, which I believe is Nisan, which is the first day of the Mesopotamian and the Jewish National New Year, or possibly it takes place on the first day of the first month of Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah. But, as I said, I prefer the former. It was on the 601st year, meaning the 601st year of Noah's life, on the first day of the first, uh, on the first day of the first, uh, on the first month, the water evaporated from the land and Noah removed the cover of the ark, which apparently is another piece of the ark which were not included in the chapter 6 blueprints. And he saw and behold the land had become dry. However, Noah remains in the ark for another 57 days, perhaps until the 27th day of the second month. Perhaps that's because there's dry, and then there's dry enough to live on. And perhaps because God wanted the entire process to last a specific number of days, as we will see now. And in the second month, which Rashi now agrees is a cardinal number, meaning month number two, on the 27th day of the month, and the land was dried. That is exactly one solar year, 365 days. So while the months that we have are tracked as lunar months, and Mesopotamia tracks months in lunar, the year is a lunar year, as, as does Israel, as does essentially everywhere else in Tanakh, um, although there's a complication, because here all the months have 30 days, which is, since the moon goes around the earth in 29 and a half days, it's a half day too long for each lunar month. Uh, Rashi avoids this problem, actually, because in Rashi's calculations, he goes with some months being 29, some 30. But in Ramban's approach, and I think the approach, I think the straightforward meaning of the text, it's 30 days, which is a half a day too long. Of course, if you go for a solar year, that doesn't help either, because each solar month is 30 and a half days, so you're one half day too long. In any event, while the months are tracked as lunar months, meaning the year is a lunar year, God tacks on to Noah's, to the flood event, to this cataclysm, an extra 11 days, in order to make the experience a solar year experience. Remember, the flood started on the 7th day of ER, it ends on the 27th day of ER, uh, of the next year, that's, that's an extra 11 days to the lunar year, or 365 days of solar year. I'll offer some explanations of why God makes this event uh, um, a solar event in the next Aliyah, God willing, and we will see that it is time for 
Noah to get out of his boats, to get out of his ark, and start recreating civilization.